Welcome to Notes from the Electronic Cottage. I'm Jim Campbell. Well, though some folks thought it would never get here, it's clearly summer in Maine. The number of cars on the road tells us that there are visitors galore, and many of us are trying to take things a little more slowly, if we can. So, this is a good time to root around in the Electronic Cottage archives to dig up some programs that may be worth another listen for those of us here year-round, or that may be new to folks who've come to visit. In either case, we hope you enjoy, and find useful, this Notes from the Electronic Cottage Encore. Welcome to Notes from the Electronic Cottage. I'm Jim Campbell. If someone asked, what is the biggest challenge that the Internet faces today, what would you say? Hacking, perhaps? Maybe identity fraud? Ineffective security? Those are all certainly good candidates. And right in the middle of them is an identification number that was never designed to be a universal identification number. That's right. It's the venerable, and to many people's mind, outdated social security number. One of the reasons that the recent hack of Equifax's databases is considered so serious is that those databases contain social security numbers, which are now used as a universal identifier of individuals. It wasn't always that way. Social security numbers were first issued in 1935 when the Social Security Act became law. Originally, those numbers were designed to simply keep track of a person's contributions to and receipts of Social Security benefits. The numbers were never intended as universal identification numbers. In fact, from 1946 until 1972, Social Security cards that were printed in those years expressly said that they were not meant for identification purposes. Over time, partly as a result of government tax policy, partly due to the rise in the use of credit, social security numbers, which belonged to a single individual, became a de facto way to index information about a particular individual. Up until the Tax Reform Act of 1986, People under 14 rarely had social security numbers, since in most states, people couldn't hold jobs if they were under that age. Nowadays, if parents want to claim a child as young as one year old as a dependent for tax deduction purposes, the child has to have a social security number. Thus, it's pretty common today for parents to apply for a social security number when they apply for a birth certificate. In other words, social security numbers, though not universal, some religious groups do have exemptions from getting them, they are nonetheless, practically speaking, ubiquitous in the United States. That makes them a golden way to identify an individual for all sorts of purposes, commercial as well as governmental, and especially in the digital world where merchants and banks and service providers never see the people that they're dealing with. So Equifax, among many other companies, has a large collection, hundreds of millions, of social security numbers. And now some group of hackers has close to 150 million of those social security numbers. 
As we know, those social security numbers can serve as a gateway to establishing new credit cards or loan accounts, accessing existing bank accounts, obtaining expensive medical care, all without the person whose social security number has been compromised knowing a thing about it. Until, until the bills start rolling in and bill collectors start calling and the person's new credit requests are rebuffed. Pretty much everyone, including the present administration in Washington, has called for replacing social security numbers as a means of near-universal identification. The big question is, what to replace those social security numbers with? And that question gets to what is probably the biggest challenge in the digital world today. How can identity be established and proven in a way that eliminates or significantly reduces identity theft, theft of services, or large-scale invasions of privacy? This is not a new question, but with hundreds of millions of online records being hacked every year, it's become an even more urgent question in the past few years. Back in the early 2000s, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the question of proving one's identity to get on an airplane or even a bus or a train became a very hot item for governments. Hence, things like the Real ID Act, which has badgered Mainers ever since, became part of federal law. But Amazon is not the government, at least not officially. Nor is Walmart, nor Bank of America, nor the tens of thousands of online and even offline businesses that require some way to be sure that people are who they say they are before the businesses sell them anything, grant them credit, or whatever. We clearly need a way to prove identity in a secure and hopefully reasonably private way. What that way will be is very far from clear. These days, there are two basic approaches to confirming identity, by what we are or by what we have. That is the basis of so-called two-factor authentication, which some listeners may be familiar with today. For example, a person tries to access an account online for work or for a bank or whatever. The person signs in at a website with a name and password, and then the website sends a message, usually a one-time code, to, for example, the person's cell phone. The person then enters that one-time code, and the website is sure that the person is who he or she claims to be. Identity is confirmed by something that we have. In this case, a one-time code that's only sent to a single person's cell phone. In theory, no one else has that code, so identity is confirmed and the bank or whoever allows the transaction to proceed. The other approach to proving identity is by what we are. That happens, for example, when a person puts a finger on a fingerprint reader to unlock a computer, or has an eye scanned at the entrance to a worksite or at an airport security gate. Both of these approaches have strengths, and some weaknesses. For example, the what we are approach can be fooled. Eye scanners can be fooled by a photograph of an eye. Fingerprint scanners have been fooled with a little bit of a silly putty-like substance. In short, 
The search for ways to uniquely identify people beyond a social security number goes on, and replacing those numbers with some other way to confirm people's identity for governmental and commercial purposes online is proving surprisingly difficult. Back in 2002, in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, the National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering issued a report entitled, quote, IDs, not that easy, questions about nationwide identity systems, end quote. That report took a step back from the details of what type of authentication might be secure and how to make it work, and instead brought up some key questions about why we may want the nationwide identity system in the first place and the very significant challenges to creating one. And we'll take a look at that report's questions in a future edition of Notes from the Electronic Cottage.